welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, and Ms. Aida, author of psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at MsAida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Tarot Glasser, Ginger Glasser. And you can find her at TarotByGinger.com. And she is a psychic, evidential medium, and tarot card reader. And if you're looking for advice or looking into future or just curious and want to do it for fun, you can check her out at tarotbyginger.com. And now for today, our guest is Dr. Simeon Hine, and he is the author of Dark Matter Monsters, Cryptids, Ball Lightning, and the Science of Secret Life Forms. And this is the type of topic I love, and oddly enough, I've even talked about it before in the past. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me here today. Great. So, um, I mean, the first question I always ask everybody is, like, what got you into this? Like, like you're a statistics professor, doctor, and right. you're writing books about cryptids and consciousness. So, It's a good question. Um, you know, people that go into academics, we're looking to really find evidence ideas and truth mm -hmm. reality the way it really is and you prepare yourself through years of graduate school training that things may not work out the way you thought they would right. when you start a project you may come to a conclusion that's different than what you thought when you started and that's sort of why you have a dissertation committee there is there kind of want to see if you have an objective perspective if you're willing to look at ideas that may go against what you personally like to believe in, if you're willing to look at what the data show versus what you wanted it to show. And that's really the process you go through in academics and, and in other fields too, also in law and other areas like that, where you're, it's a process of coming to the truth by looking at all the available evidence. And there's some way that you assemble the information about what conclusion you come to at the end. Mm -hmm. So when I came across the idea, I heard someone talk about something called remote viewing in 1996. There was a part of my mind, having just been gone through graduate school, and having actually, I was an assistant professor even for a semester after that, uh, in statistics, I came across this idea that didn't seem plausible to me at the beginning. But having been through, you know, graduate school, having gotten a PhD, I realized there may be things out there that you didn't know about at first that when you really look at the evidence, I'm not talking like a superficial mm -hmm. cursory look at the evidence, like we're all used to now from the Internet and from social media where, you know, there's something pitched, an idea, and, you know, it, you don't spend a huge amount of time looking into it. It's just sort of something that goes by your feed. It looks interesting. We're talking about taking years of your life and looking at something, going to the library a lot like we used to before <laughs> the age of the internet, really studying something, looking at the evidence. Mm -hmm. It's a painstaking process, but that's 
what society is investing in you a lot of energy and time to become a doctor of something, an expert, right? Mm -hmm. And so when I encountered the idea of remote viewing, I was really didn't believe that the average person had natural psychic ability. Uh, I was open to the idea that maybe they're special people, people we had seen on TV and those TV shows from the 80s and 90s where they'd have those women psychics working with police detectives solving, you know, crimes and things like this. And so when I took a class in it in 1996 at a place called the Farsight Institute, I was really surprised that I was getting information that was not revealed to me yet. It would be a target hidden in a folder. Mm -hmm. It was more accurate than it should have been based on the statistics. I sort of had a sense of if you're just guessing at the colors and the shapes and the sizes of any particular target, any particular thing, you would expect to get some of it correct just from guessing. But I could see from the results in a few days that I was getting and other people in the class were getting uh, more uh, more accuracy, more target contact, as it's called, than they would have been if it was a really random process. And statistics, you just start out with the idea that there are these random processes out there and it's up to you to prove that there's some correlation there or even causation. So we're used to the idea that there's nothing really going on out of the ordinary. But remote viewing showed me there was something going on that I couldn't explain that <laughs> was know, beyond I, my consciousness. I, I took a remote viewing course with um, – he was one of my guests, um, David Morehouse. And he wrote right. the uh, remote viewing handbook and you know worked in the – with uh, SRI right. and all of that. And yep. I took his course. It was online, but it was like with like 20 other people. And – I was completely blown away uh -huh. by how accurate that information came through. So I totally, really, I totally relate like I, how that can bring your perspective like to something new. It, it can, it really can. And, uh, and here's another thing I learned from remote viewing before I got into all these other mm -hmm. topics, your conscious mind has a bias towards the way you were brought up to believe about reality. So there could be things going on around you that you don't see, even on a piece of paper on a desk in front of you, that you don't see until you're done with it and you look at it objectively to see that you got did something that shouldn't have been possible from mm -hmm. a just a null hypothesis point of view. There, you're doing something that nobody told you existed, but the proof is right on the page in front of you, unless... There's some trick going on. There's some subliminal sound telling you the target in your ear, but you're not consciously hearing it. Your mind starts coming up with these counter explanations that might explain it if it wasn't what it appears to be, which is some sort of psychic phenomena. So this is what RV also taught me, Gary, is we don't really know what reality we're in. What we know is a story we were taught since we were very, very young. Absolutely. From nursery school, from our parents onward, as soon as we could speak, right? And it's reinforced over every, over every day you go to school, every day you go to work. It's this story of reality. Yeah. And I think that's what we experience is a story. But there's a big possibility that story doesn't really match up with reality as much as we think it does. <laughs> and there's really big gaps. And are we as adults willing to look at the evidence are we do we actually look at evidence or do we just look at that evidence that we think supports 
what we already believe, which gets back to that bias tendency. And there's a lot of biases in our thinking in our mind, right? We, there's a consistency Very bias. We, we we like to confirm confirmation bias. We like things that confirm what we already believe because it makes us feel makes our ego feel comfortable. And so the real hallmark of science is: can you look at evidence that does not confirm what you believe before and have the, you know, the perspective to come to a conclusion that was different than what you initially thought? And that's how this all starts for me. Now, one more thing, let me bring this in. Even during graduate school, I came across something called chaos theory in sociology. It wasn't from sociologists. It was from other grad students because during, in the mid eighties, this idea of chaos theory, small changes, creating large effects. That was something that was coming to the forefront in sciences, physical sciences. Mm -hmm. There was the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico and other places that were because of the advent of computers, we're looking into this idea called chaos theory, which meant that things were not necessarily linear, which means even if you turn the knob a little bit, you're not going to get just a small increase or decrease. It could cause this chaotic bifurcation into a whole other realm of attraction, as mm -hmm. it's called, domain of attraction. And that led to the idea of fractal geometry. And fractal objects, as many people know, Back then, it was sort of new because of computers. We could create fractals on our early computers back then, right? Which are self-similar scale and variant mm -hmm. objects like trees and clouds and mountain ranges and rivers and the way nature really looks. So I come across this idea of fractal geometry and fractals, the definition of fractals are objects between dimensions. Not from a paranormal point of view. From a mathematical point of view, objects between dimensions. So I was open to the idea, even in graduate school, though I had never heard of these topics that I'm familiar with now, that there could be processes that science hadn't tackled in my field of sociology because they weren't linear, they didn't fit, and they were between dimensions. And I wasn't even sure what that would look like, but it's sort of what I wrote my dissertation about before my knowledge of these topics that I'm very familiar with now or more familiar with was that there could be phenomena there even in the ordinary world that you really didn't understand because they weren't linear or evenly shaped Euclidean shaped objects that they were irregular that they were jagged scale invariant like fractals are they can exist just like mountain ranges and clouds and trees do but they don't fit in ordinary geometry and math that we're familiar with. Hmm. You just said so much. You know, one of the things that you've mentioned, I was first thing, want to talk, you know, reality. Like we, we, we only know what we're told. You know, right. and, and one of the things that kind of comes up with me is that too is the whole observer effect. You know, maybe I'm observing this because I was told this, but it's right. not actually what it is. It is exactly. We have these biases. And I find, as a sociologist, that most people don't really have an open mind to anything that they weren't taught was real, somewhere along the line by authority figures in their life. And we know that this is very serious in terms of how societies work, and our society in particular. I mean, it creates things like racism and discrimination, because we don't treat people for who they are. We have this sort of image of who they are based on how we were brought up and the type of people we were brought up around. So we always see the people who are other than us, who are different from us, 
we don't see them the same way as the people we grew up around. And, and we're all familiar with this. I mean, the United States is a big experiment. Is can we all learn to get along together from different nationalities, from different backgrounds? We're very different than other countries. And I think we have an openness in this country, in the United States, uh, to uh, and, and other countries, you know, North America overall. There's a lot of diversity and we're open to the idea that maybe there's a legal process that we can follow to you know, to reach a sense of fairness and truth that isn't based on where we're coming from initially, but on the objectivity of the process. And if you believe in that, you have to believe in things that are going on right now, like UFO disclosure and all these other topics that we're interested in, because you realize you don't know what's going on until you look at the evidence. That's how we believe it in our modern perspective as modern Western people. I mean, wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. 100% yeah. I agree with you. We're evidence-based people. Mm -hmm. And that challenges our biases. And it's all very, it, for me, it was, it's still to this day, I get up every day, it's extremely challenging to realize that things are not at all like I used to think they were. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know how long it takes to understand reality. I'm over a half a century old at this point, and it's just, I'm just learning about things that I realize have been going on the whole time and I didn't <laughs> know about until very recently. Uh, about the same age, and I still just am too. I don't had a clue of what it's the most basic question, right? What is this experience I'm having? And I can't answer it. I cannot no, answer that question. And it should be like the easiest question in the world. Like most people would just say, Oh yeah, I'm just sitting at a desk talking to someone. But is that what it really is? I know how you feel. That's how I feel every day too. And it's funny. It's people like you and me, as we get older, we realize, and maybe it's healthy. Do we know less and less? This, the, the, the stories we were taught as younger people are mythologies that societies create is it to create stability. Societies mm -hmm. create these to create continuity. It's not a bad thing. It's a limiting thing <laughs> because uh, I, no one ever told me about remote viewing or UFOs or cryptids or any, any of these topics that now really consume my, in, my focus every day. Uh, no one told me about that the whole time from kindergarten to Ph.D., 27 years. I was in school continuously for 27 years, took courses in every subject matter you could imagine, passed, got my Ph.D. <laughs> and I have to say, I don't think that our formal educational processes really, they're teaching you how to think, but they don't really know what reality is either. No. It's just a process of... <clears throat> Learning, categorizing almost is what we're doing. Categorizing, memorization, a kind of way of ranking people in society by mm -hmm. how well they play the game. How well can you repeat the paradigm that we're teaching you? That's sort of what it is. And thank, thank goodness we have had people in our history like Einstein mm -hmm. and Copernicus and Galileo and men, many other people that we would call scientists now, even though back then they were just called natural philosophers. We call them scientists now, who really looked at things and said, wait a minute, wait, hold on a second. It isn't that way. It's this way. We, and we reevaluate. And every hundred years or so, we have this huge reevaluation of the entire paradigm. Mm -hmm. And people don't want to do it. They go through it kicking and screaming. The institutions push back. In the olden days, they would burn you at the stake. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen anymore. But you could, you know, be 
lose your job. You could be blackmailed by your employers, right? right. Pilots, think of pilots and UFO sightings, mm -hmm. uh, people who see things in law enforcement that don't fit our sense of reality of creatures that are supposed to exist, things like this. And so it puts all those people in a very challenging position. Now, it's I think it's the job of scientists to objectively look at all of this information. And I think we're starting to do that right now mm -hmm. and say, well, wait a minute, maybe there are ufos uap up in the atmosphere maybe they're here a lot we just had oh, we're doing this interview on a day where the odni report was finally released two months late <laughs> right i just had a chance to look at it before we're talking here and they said well here we go again they said we have 515 new incidents that we have learned about since our last report i don't know if it's total both reports or since the last report, but now that they said we can only explain about two thirds of them, 171 cases, we have no idea what they are. I mean, they don't fit. They're not clutter. They're not plastic bags. They're not ice crystals. They're not of those. It's something we can't explain. And so maybe we are opening up again, but it's serious because, you know, if you know people who've experienced these events, what we're doing is creating a class of people who are been stigmatized and are traumatized by their experiences sometimes and don't know where to talk about this to when they've had experiences with things that go beyond our ordinary definition of reality. So I think it's actually a more serious issue than we've been led to believe. I think there are a lot of witnesses out there to a range of phenomena that don't come forward because they're afraid of the ridicule that they're going to receive. So do you have a hypothesis of what this reality is and what it is we are experiencing and why? My feeling about it is more that our consciousness is something that's permanent, but it goes through huge numbers of changes. And some of it, while we're in this form as a human being, takes the form of a human experience. Uh, but what that means is that reality is absolutely huge and you could encounter anything and it doesn't fit the human story that you were taught. I mean, there's literally things out there that you could experience that nobody you've ever talked to in your life understands. Do you realize how serious that is? We just assume somebody out there knows, right? right. Especially when we're younger. <laughs> yeah, we hope so. We hope you that they know. Somebody, somebody will take care of it. Somebody's responsible, right? It'll be the Air Force. It'll be law enforcement. So somebody will deal with it. But as you get older like we are, you realize, no, it is real. What it is is society has like this immune response, a social immune response to new things. And it attacks them, like our immune system. Mm -hmm. It's a social belief immune system. And rather than dealing with reality, we attack the people that say they've experienced it because it's a threat to the paradigm. We yeah. end up repeating this same uh, activity day in, day out, socially and politically, because we're afraid to deal with what's really out there. And so... We it's like we're the drunks underneath the street light looking for our keys because that's where the light is. That's where the light is. It's such shines. a crazy visual of like every person on the planet sort of cattled and herded up because we don't want to look at the truth. No, I don't think we do. Because we all know someone who's experienced it. We all know someone who's experienced something that that shouldn't exist by the way we were brought up. I've experienced a lot of things that shouldn't have existed lot of things 
And every night we go to sleep, we experience something we don't really understand, right? Dreams? Yeah. So uh, we're all experiencing the unknown every day anyway. It's just how much courage do we have to go into that unknown and see if we can make sense of it in any possible way uh, without just reacting to it and denying it. There's a knee-jerk reaction to deny these phenomena, all of them. And so it's just how we are. We, we Our first instance is just to, it's like a rubber band effect, as some people call it. The rubber band always wants to go back to the position it was in. And our mind has this boggle point. It doesn't want to go past a certain point. But what happens if reality is changing and more and more people are experiencing these phenomena? Even in the ODNI report, Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which I looked at you know, this morning since it was released, they say that the reports are on the rise. So it could be that it's it's not as constant as it looks. In other words, just as we get changes in global temperatures, changes in magnetism and positions of the poles, you know, solar flares, there are large-scale things that change over periods of years and decades. Yes. CO2 concentration of the atmosphere, which you can look back in history, has these huge thousand-year cycles, right? Mm -hmm. Our minds don't really do well dealing with thousand-year cycles. We're just like looking forward. <laughs> We're like mammals looking forward. What's going to happen in the next hour? What's happening tomorrow? But, you know, if you look at these big patterns, you have to ask yourself, are there some other constants in our universe that are slowly changing that may open the doors to these other realities, and all of a sudden we start experiencing more of it, more bleed-through? So to ask to answer your question before you go to your next question, I think the reality we live in is a multiverse. We want to pretend it's a universe, but I think the reality is it's a multiverse and that we live in a time-space continuum where other realities are also occurring that normally we don't have any interaction with so we can pretend they don't exist. But they're here and sometimes they bleed through. And just as we're a surprise to see them pop into our reality, they might be surprised to see us pop into their reality. They may say, hey, what... What are you doing here, right? Yeah. From yeah. their point of view. And that's how I look at it most objective way I can. That's what I think is going on. That's the way I look Our at reality. it. I look at it too as, as a multiverse. My thing is like I think something became conscious. I didn't know why it was conscious. And the only way it could figure out its own consciousness was to run through every probability and then take all that information back and then it would know what it is. And – so, so everything that is probable and possible exists all at one time in right. order to have some kind of end major self-revelation of an understanding of itself. Right. I think everything exists all at the same time. And where our minds break it down into this linear conscious time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just, time's a tough one. Like, we don't even... We don't even really know what gravity is, right? We know it's a force. No. We know what it does. We know the results. We can measure it. But do we actually know what it is? I mean, no, that's kind of, and, and that's kind of what's holding the particles and stuff together. So right. We, but we don't know. Right. And that is sort of what led me to get into the topic of dark matter and write about it is, you know, I came across this concept decades ago at the University of Arizona when I was getting my... So, you know, master's degree in sociology, the U of A was really good in astrophysics. So I'd go over to the planetarium at night. Once a week, they had 
some of the top experts probably in the world talking about astrophysics. Wow. You could go in. It was free. And this is a great break from graduate school, from dealing with all this kind of linear, normal regression statistics. And here they were talking about how little we know, which is being honest, little we know about our own universe. And this is back in the 80s. I don't know if dark energy had been even discovered yet or the idea of it. Dark matter had been postulated back then. And, they, you know, that was the idea was that the vast majority of the matter in the universe isn't even visible to us. I mean, when you look around you, you think you see what's out there, but you don't. You're only seeing a tiny fraction, a couple percent maybe, of the energy and the material out there because a lot of it's hidden. Even some of the ordinary matter is considered non-baryonic, mm -hmm. which means it doesn't interact with light. Yeah. Now, it just seems to me that if we know that there's 10 dark matter particles for every one ordinary particle of matter... There's probably 10 times as much life out there that's dark matter based versus our type of matter, which is visible. At least it's a reasonable thing to uh, talk about. I mean, if we're outnumbered by dark matter 10 to 1 and dark energy 40 to 1, something like that, then there's other life that's not based on our particular biology, biochemical makeup, but mm -hmm. should exist. And it's feasible, just like we interact with dark matter, as I write about it, dark matter monsters, relic neutrinos from the cosmic background radiation. Mm -hmm. I mean, being at the U of A around astrophysics, I was fascinated. I almost wanted to switch departments from sociology to astrophysics, but I did. But I learned about this cosmic background radiation. Now we know it. we're interacting with it all the time. These relic neutrinos come mm -hmm. in. They're 13 billion years old. 10 million a second are interacting with your body. They don't, they're not electromagnetic, they're neutrinos, but they create a pressure. They interact with dark matter and gravity and gravity. So we have like clues about what this is, even though we can't actually say what gravity is. Um, we have models of it, but um, it's just, it's a vast universe, even at this the idea of the universe, forget the multiverse for a second. And the James Webb telescope, which just launched last mm -hmm. fall, uh, became active last year at launch. Uh, it had to go ways out into the solar system. It, it, I think it detected its first exoplanet just a couple of days ago. Hmm. More planets out there, you know. And so I think for anyone listening to this wondering, how far does this go out about how much we don't know? What we do know is this. The universe in our human history, it's gotten bigger and bigger all the time. We used to think we were the only planet just 500 years ago. <laughs> we were it. We were we were the central planet. Everything revolved around us. Oh, there were a couple other planets that were known, but we were like the main one and everything else was secondary. There wasn't really any motion. There was nothing happening outside of the Earth. That was the just 500 years ago. And now, look, we're finding exoplanets, you know, how many billions of light years away at the far edges of our own galaxy. So we do know one thing. We can be confident about this, Gary. Our <laughs> sense of how small we are compared uh, to the vastness of the universe, it keeps, the, the proportions keep growing in terms of we're getting smaller yes. relative to how big it is. So it's only a matter of time before we find out there's just bigger structures out there and more life and more things going on than our brain imagined in the beginning of this human journey. Hmm. It is 
I mean, you know, the idea that there's probably physical, biological life forms on other planets, I think that's the obvious one. But, you know, I think also from your dark matter perspective, too, is there's entities from, like, other dimensions or, or made of that right. other matter or right. made of neutrinos or, or whatever yes. they're made of. There's these Thank other you. conscious things yes. that, that we can think forms. about. Why not? Yeah. That's why – so you asked me in the beginning what what's going on. We're a conscious entity that's created this form around us. William Tiller called it the bio body suit. William Tiller was this great researcher in subtle energy who mm. I got to meet several times at conferences who's now passed on. He had this idea of a reciprocal space. This got me thinking about it a long time, just listening to Bill Tiller from the point of view of a physicist engineer, that there's this physical space we see, but he imagined in this same space we're in, there's a reciprocal space of energy that doesn't work. It connects things in ways you don't see physically, which was sort mm -hmm. of interesting, right? Just to think about a our space versus a D space. Right. Yeah. Direct Somebody space. explained that to me once as like a checkerboard. Yeah. Right. I think scientifically, these are all very defensible models, mm -hmm. but if you take it to its full implications, it implies there's also other life yeah. out there that isn't, it's, it's not based on direct space like we can see. It's in a reciprocal space. That doesn't mean it can't come into our space occasionally and we don't venture into its space while we're dreaming. Mm -hmm. It's just that this reality we see is just one of many realities. And uh, even someone like Hugh Everett III at Princeton in the 50s proposed the relative states model, which that's what he called it, uh, just to be on the safe side with his dissertation committee. It later became known as the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And Hugh Everett wasn't going out there on science fiction trying to make it more complex. He was trying to simplify quantum mechanics, mm -hmm. this Schrodinger wave function, which describes, as you're saying, all these possibilities and probabilities for any group of particles, a wave function of probability. Well, <laughs> Hugh asked a very basic question. Where do, are all these realities if we're only seeing things look fairly stable to us as we look around in the spaces we're in? You know, the colors are kind of stable from one minute to the next, right? the form, but that's not what quantum mechanics tells us it should be like. It should be oscillating. So he wondered whether, where are the other descriptions of reality that the Schrodinger wave function describes? And his conclusion was that all the possibilities exist and you and I are actually in all of these mm -hmm. is other versions. Yes, yes. We have a multiple description too. And boy, mm -hmm. did he receive a lot of blowback from that from none other than John Wheeler. John Archibald Wheeler who was, you know, very famous physicist, worked in the Manhattan Project and worked with defense contractors. He had his own theories about gravity, by the way. He would have enjoyed your ideas about this, that gravity was really the fundamental thing in our universe. And he worked with Feynman, the Wheeler-Feynman hypothesis and so forth. But Wheeler was really afraid that Hugh Everett would tick off the Niels Bohr of the Copenhagen school mm -hmm. in Denmark, Niels Bohr, <laughs> who invented, you know, yeah. the Bohr model of the atom and, you know, the idea of the Copenhagen interpretation among others who worked with him, that there's this particle wave duality. And uh, that idea was that your consciousness sort of collapses this Schrodinger wave function. It creates what we've heard of as wave function collapse. 
And that was the idea that the only reason it looks like it does to us is all the other versions disappeared. It's called the disappearing worlds mm -hmm. theory. But Hugh wanted to know, well, where do those disappearing worlds go if you and I don't perceive them? And the answer at the time was, well, they only exist when a human perceives them. Mm -hmm. But Hugh Everett, being the good scientist that he was, didn't buy that. He said that, well, what happens if a dog perceives or does a dog collapse the wave function? Does a mouse? And Einstein had this favorite quote of his. He said, I can't believe the moon comes into existence when a mouse comes out of its hole at night and looks <laughs> up at the moon. Then it all of a sudden exists. He goes back in the hole and disappears. Einstein wasn't buying it. And mm -hmm. I, I personally, I think Einstein was right. I know it's popularly believed that he lost these, these debates with Bohr, the Einstein-Bohr debates at these Solvay conferences. There were five of them, as far as I know, where all these great physicists of the time, can you imagine, got together <laughs> and would have these types of conversations like we're having right now, right. but really try to make it sense in terms of physics, the best we could tell. That's how they would kind of create ideas back then. They'd have huge conferences. Einstein wasn't buying any of it. And uh, I actually think he's more on the correct side of this than the than the others. And I, I mean, Schrodinger, I think, was on Einstein's side, even though he's associated with the wave function. In other words, there is a reality. I like the Hugh Everett interpretation. I'm not saying that's the way mm -hmm. it really works. But I'm just saying as a way of thinking about it, because there's different ways of construing Everett's ideas. Just the idea, if you can just get this one idea into your mind, I think it's a big success for your day today, for me too, <laughs> that all these possibilities are real. They are not figments of your imagination. I, I, I agree. Don't disappear when you're not looking so at them. So that's why I titled my show the show, Everything Imaginable, because if it yes. can be imagined, then it's real. I actually believe that's yeah. physically true. Now, you may not be experiencing it, but just like me in my RV class back in 96, I didn't think that was going to be real. And, you know, but it was. It turned out you can see things before you physically see them. And so that is what you conclude is that these real everything in your imagination is a reality happening somewhere. I believe this actually. Now it doesn't mean you're going to experience mm -hmm. it physically or anything like this, but it's real for somebody somewhere. And that's why imagination is so important and so powerful, right? For creativity. It's everything we can't. We, all, all the things that you and I are talking about, we wouldn't be talking about if people like Einstein and Bohr had imagined this stuff. Right. They imagined all these possibilities, and we're still sorting through it. Mm -hmm. And it just takes a lot of guts to go beyond what the mainstream is doing. Even in any field, you're dealing with vested interests. People have vested, you know, put a lot of effort into their careers on a certain set of ideas. And we know this happens with organizations and governments. Yes. They don't want to divert from what they've been doing because then they'd have to admit they were wrong or they made a mistake. Nobody likes doing that, right? <laughs> Right. And this is what we're dealing with with the UFO issue, with Bigfoot, cryptids, mm -hmm. all of this stuff. Yeah, they, they name, have to exist. I don't even have names for these types of life forms that are out there. We don't have any idea, Gary. We right. have no idea what's out there. It's very easy to dismiss this because they're not common in the human experience every single day. But enough people experience these phenomena, often together, UFOs and cryptids in mm -hmm. the same area that really have to make you wonder whether we're living in this sort of Everettian universe of parallel realities. And somehow these entities on the other side can choose when they come through to ours. We don't know necessarily how to get through to theirs, at least in our physical form. Mm -hmm. They seem to know how to show up. Uh, some of the UFO, I'm not saying they're all from parallel realities. Maybe they're from here. Maybe they're civilizations here on Earth or even visiting from other places in our galaxy that's certainly probable but that doesn't mean that some of it isn't 
also like an energy type form that's coming through from other parallel realities. And if you mm -hmm. want a way to think about it, anyone listening, like, well, Simeon, how do you think about this? It's very simple. It's just like frequencies on a radio dial. You could tune to one station on your radio. It doesn't mean the other stations aren't there. You're just not listening to them. Just because you spent your whole life on tuned to one station. Like right. when I grew up in New York, there was 1010 winds, mm -hmm. right? You could just leave <laughs> that 1010 winds on all the time because they would do news. They would do weather. They had that little sound of, you know, the typewriters going to teletype. And you could just leave that station on. It doesn't mean there wasn't also 99X and all these other stations on other bands Wait, on FM, right? Z100. Z100. Yeah, so we all grew up with these radio mm -hmm. stations, at least you and I did. But yeah. we knew that just because we're listening to one channel doesn't mean the other ones weren't going on at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that's the easiest analogy for understanding parallel realities. And if anyone has a better explanation of how these phenomena just seem to pop up in people's homes, things that walk through walls. Mm -hmm. I'm open to other explanations. I just think the simplest, I, I like to take the Einsteinian point of view. Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. If you want to make it complicated, fine. But my, I'm more of an Einsteinian here. I just like to simplify it without denying the data. I'm not saying simplify it by pretending it doesn't exist. I'm saying, assuming all these people, experiences people tell us they have are true on your show and others, the easiest explanation, the simplest, most direct is parallel realities that have bleed through that are not always parallel. If they're yeah. always parallel, they wouldn't interact. They, they occasionally cross and they come into your life and you don't have to be afraid of it. You don't have to run away in terror. It's just there's other things out there and they may not look at all like what you, you're used to life looking at. As I write about in Dark Matter Monsters, they may be based on dark matter. They may absorb more relic neutrinos than you are, which is going to give them abilities that you and I don't have mm -hmm. yet. And they may have supernatural types of strength. They may be able to do mind talk into your mind directly. They may be able to cloak, teleport, look like a tree, and then walk away. All of this stuff. It's all happening out there. We all know people who've experienced this. Yes. And we don't need to stigmatize these people. Let's just admit we're living in a multiverse and people have these experiences. And it may not make sense, just like remote viewing didn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. I can see it was real, even though I still to this day am not quite sure how I'm doing it. I teach classes in it. People say they like it. I still don't know quite how they do what they're doing, but they're doing it. Yeah. And I think it's better to be on the side of wonder and surprise and learning than to dis put everything in a, like a mental jail and just say, oh, well, those people are just weirdos who are having these experiences mm -hmm. and there's something wrong with them. Stigmatize them, ridicule yeah. them because it's just ordinary people who are having these experiences. And it's really society. I forgot who that psychologist was that I used to read as a high school student. Who was that guy? He always said it wasn't, he, he, he treated schizophrenic people. Mm -hmm. You might've read his books. I forgot. I was trying to think of his name <laughs> He, he made this argument, which appealed to me as a 15-year-old in high uh -huh. school, that it was society that was schizophrenic, and these were normal people in a schizophrenic society. You remember that Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, yeah. In the 70s. It, it, and I, and I, I also adopted that theory because, like, when I had friends, like, new people that were schizophrenic, I'd wonder, like, maybe it's just, like, they don't have a filter that I have, and they're seeing right, something that's right. there. Maybe just the, the filter for them wasn't there. Just like I when have, people take hallucinogens, maybe what they're seeing isn't a hallucination. Yeah. Maybe we're just pulling a filter away. 
I think you have to ask this question. I think what you're saying is exactly the way I've been thinking more recently is maybe these, and I think we've, name is almost coming back to me. What was this guy? He's kind of a radical psychiatrist. He had a degree in psychiatry. He's a radical psychiatrist. Like, <laughs> that was the idea. They don't have the filters that we have. So maybe they're experiencing reality. Because I know I talked to a, a psychiatrist recently from Texas. And he wanted to talk to me because a lot of his clients had experienced Bigfoot, Dogman, and other cryptids over the course of their life somewhere in Texas. And he wanted to talk to me about it because he initially thought they must be delusional or schizophrenic. But when he gave them those batteries of psychological evaluating sorts of tests, you know, mm -hmm. that psychiatrists and psychologists use to sort of assess your, your mental state, they were completely normal, <laughs> except they had experienced cryptids while hunting or hiking or as a kid or something. And he realized you know, that they don't, people in those field of psychiatry, psycho psychology aren't really trained how to deal with people who've had anomalous experiences because it doesn't fit anywhere in their, you know, spectrum of disorders very easily. Mm -hmm. And so they don't really know what to do with it. And, uh, you know, they, they need some help to realize that these people believe they've had these experiences. And maybe we, if you and I were there, we would have seen what they've seen too. But there is no way to evaluate them based on how they've been taught. It's almost like all of these categories that we've been brought up with in society, in academics, are just archaic now. They're, they're, they're obsolete. We don't recognize it yet. And we know they're obsolete because we're having the, these special, you know, sub-organizations within the Pentagon look at UFOs now because they don't even know, they don't even know what to call it. All Domain Anomaly mm -hmm. Resolution Office. What the heck is that? Fault domain anomaly <laughs> resolution office. That means you don't know what's going on. That's what I mean. <laughs> just admit it. I think it'd be healthier if we admitted this. Yeah, I think just, they just right now if, if investigating right now. things we don't understand. Like, what is wrong with we, that? <laughs> they're in the atmosphere. They're in the ocean. They show up. Weird stuff happens, and we don't know what they are. Yeah. Okay, everyone, go home. <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it's it's better to do that than playing this game that we're playing right now. Like. You know, let's explain it away as, you know, flocks of geese and ice crystals, mm -hmm. weather balloons, weather balloons. We've been, how long have we been listening solar to Solar flares. That's always been my favorite. Solar flares <laughs> reflecting off the windshield. I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. It's, it's immature. And I'm still waiting for the day. Let me just give you an example of this, Gary. I was at the citizen hearing in 2013 mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. at the National Press Club. It was a very respectable effort by Stephen Bassett and the Paradigm Research I know Stephen. Right. And he held this thing called the citizen hearing. He wanted real senators and congresspeople to show up to be on the hearing panel, but he couldn't get anyone to show up. So he found retired congressmen and senators, Congress people and senators, congresswomen, who he paid to be on this hearing panel because he couldn't get any sitting representatives or senators to show up. Mm -hmm. And it was excellent testimony for five days, 40 witnesses, eight hours a day. And there were extra stuff at night, which is also a lot of fun lectures and so forth. Uh, really, I still remember Gary Heseltine's lecture about all his cases and looking at it as a police detective. It, it was fascinating. Great, great bunch of folks there. Uh, Dr. Roger Lear was there. Gary, uh, uh, 
uh, Marcel Jr. Mm-hmm. You know, son of uh, the 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 Roswell witnesses and so forth. Any case, um, C-SPAN had cameras there. They could have turned on C- their C-SPAN cameras for five or ten minutes, right? They didn't turn them on at all. And you had general, you know, you had people, senior military people there. You had people who ran the FAA. You had missile, n- nuclear, you know, missile launch officers. Mm-hmm. Four of them. <laughs> Saying that these objects have interfered with their missile control launch facilities, right? And all the other witnesses, Jesse Marcel Jr. and and all the other ones who we, we know who've been involved in the field, and some because some of these people had never come forward before, especially the missile control launch officers. I mean, they had been told by their superiors in the Air Force this never happened. Yeah. And uh, David Shindelli who was a friend of Robert Salas came forward because Salas who had published some books on it, right? Robert Salas from the Maelstrom incident. Mm-hmm. Right. So he had talked to other control launch officers and said, you really need to come forward. This is what, so David Shindelli was one of these people. He said he had never told this story that he told us to anybody before, because that's what he was told by his commanding officer that day. It never happened. And that's how we've been dealing with this multiverse. It's like that book Flatland from the 1880s. <laughs> that sort of character, that sort of, uh, it was a, it was a character, caricature of British society in the eight, Victorian England called Flatland, where everyone lives on a flat surface and one day a sphere shows up and it turns out at the end of the book. And then they arrest the guy that says he saw a sphere and put him into an institution. But at the end of the book, it comes. You learn that the authorities that ran Flatland had known about Sphereland the whole time. But and this is in the 1880s. This is not <laughs> 1960. This is 18. That they had known about Sphereland the whole time, but they didn't. They thought it would cause social chaos, so they didn't want anyone to know about it. But this is the situation we're in. We're we live in Sphereland, but we're pretending it's Flatland. I can't put it more simply than that. Mm-hmm. And then when you're when you're people in you're, you know, and who are your superior officers in the military tell you it never happened. You will never talk about this, not even to your wife. I've talked to other people from the military who've had the same lecture when they had a UFO encounter. Yeah. You know, there is, there's a cover up going on. I don't know what anyone would put it. You could, you could be like Steve Bassett, call it a truth embargo, but um, it's a serious situation. You get people who've experienced something and we should know about what it is. It has important consequences, but they're, they're told to keep quiet. Why do you think that? Do you think it's just because they don't want to admit that they don't know, or do you think it's that they they do know and are utilizing it for their own selfish benefit? No, it's a good question, isn't it? I don't think we totally know the answer. Well, there's one point of view that maybe private companies have this technology and they don't want to share it. It would cause us to ask questions of. Who has this technology? Uh, is there a religious bias here that people who are more fundamentalists think it would threaten their interpretation of their religion, which is something that they can't really deal with? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it 
more the issue that governments never like to talk about things that they can't control. You know, uh, this this was a discussion in this new David Polites documentary for one missing the UFO connection. Where someone there says uh, government, oh, it was D'Souza, the former FBI agent. And Pilates asks him, because D'Souza is an honest FBI agent who's investigated paranormal phenomena and says his superiors and other departments within the FBI never wanted to talk about it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we found this was also true with uh, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, James Lukatsky, who says in that book, newer book, that when OSAP went to some of these intelligence agencies in D.C., they said, we don't want to deal with this because it'll make us, it'll hurt our prospects for funding if we're associated with Skinwalker Ranch. Same, and this is what D'Souza is saying. It's, they don't want to deal with anything that doesn't fit pretty well into some sort of bureaucratic mm -hmm. label, right? That's how Washington, D.C. deals with things and bureaucracies in general. So, so the possibility is, Maybe the most likely possibility is that governments just don't want to talk about things that they can't control or regulate or fund or something like that. It just doesn't, it's not on their reality screen because they can't do anything about it. And so, and I've talked to people who know people higher up in our government who've had abduction experiences. Mm -hmm. They literally wake up outside their house, you know, repeatedly. In some cases, the door is locked. They can't get back in. They're waking up outside their house. So, um, uh, and and they, uh, John, you know, John Alexander, re retired military mm -hmm. person John, from the army. He he talked about this too at one of our conferences. He said he knew people within Department of Homeland Security who had these abduction experiences. And if we're to believe Vilkatsky, people from the DIA that worked at Skinwalker Ranch went home and saw these werewolf dogman type creatures in their backyards. I mean, their whole family saw them. And I think the implication is they hadn't talked about it because it was considered classified, but they, they still saw them, the other members of the family. So, and that created the idea of this hitchhiker effect, which I look at more as like a multidimensional frequency effect. You can call it what you want. I don't think, I don't know if it's not, they're being followed home. I mean, we could debate that but the reality is we learned from Lekatsky and we've learned from this experience of other people that are working in the government that they there's not a lot of openness to these subjects because people that work in bureaucracies are concerned with their you know their long-term benefits and retirement package and all this and they don't want anything to threaten that so Unfortunately, they're not the most intellectually curious people in the world. So, <laughs> so how do we deal with this as a society, given that people experience this and uh, it affects them? People become afraid to go out at night who've experienced these cryptids, things like this. People who've had these UFO experiences. I mean, it's. Uh... Well, I guess let's sum it up this way. The longer we take to deal with this as a country, the more critical it will be when we finally do deal with it there'll be more and more witnesses we didn't realize were there and it uh, mm. it could cause quite a change in how our society functions if we don't talk about it you right. know, as adults do you think too that maybe there 
afraid that if we know that we are as, as individuals or as a collective that we're in an infinite stream of consciousness with no beginning, no end, that's omnipresent, you know, and, and since that's the case, there's in reality, there's nothing for us to be afraid of. And there's nothing to stop us from doing what we want to do. And it gives us all this unlimited freedom by having that kind of knowledge. And one of the, I, I think that concerns them. I think they're concerned of what would happen if people start believing that kind of idea. That's a dangerous idea to them. I think it is. I think uh, all of these organizations we're around really want some sort of continuity. And they don't want, you know, they don't want their members going off in all these new directions. <clears throat> so it's a type of social control, even if it's not deliberate social control. It's still mm -hmm. a type of, uh, you know, in sociology, we call these things hidden. We call these things hidden events. And hidden events are things that people experience, but they're they don't want to talk about for some reason. And it, and it takes some sort of official and child abuse is a good example of that because this was a thing that people didn't believe in until the 60s. It wasn't considered a real diagnosis. The more common explanations that were given were that some kids had fragile bones. They were just breaking on their own. You know, these kind of intellectual alibis. Uh, all, you know, any, anything not to deal with the reality of what was going on. Doctors did not want to accuse parents of hurting their kids. And so all these professionals had this interest not to diagnose child abuse, and it took uh, it took some individuals to bring all these professionals together in the same room in a couple meetings in the '60s to agree that it was really happening. Excuse me, you know, to look at the the radio the radiograph charts um, and the X-rays, you know, and to bring law enforcement in it to kind of look at the evidence and come to some determination of what was going on. And they finally realized these kids were not falling out of trees. You know, they were being abused by their parents or somebody else. And that was a big step for society to take in the 50s. You know, um, it's just part of our evolution. And that's what people forget is we've always been evolving as a society. You know, I mean, it wasn't mm -hmm. that long ago that women couldn't even vote. So, and African-Americans, right? And it's, it's been this long process of extending this equality to everybody. But to me, that also includes people who have had these types of experiences. Too. Mm -hmm. that, and I think that's what it's going to come to eventually, because this seems to be the general trend of our Western society is to create more and more equality. Mm -hmm. And I think that means everybody, everybody. One of the interesting things, too, I think, is you know, more and more people are becoming open to to what we're talking about right now and when you become more open to something then you're going to be more likely to perceive it to see it to experience it you know like like paranormal investigators who are open-minded are ones that are going to have are more likely to have experiences so people right. who are more open to the idea of ufos are the ones who are going to see them and um but then there's a point too where i think like you reach like a critical mass of people who believe versus the ones that don't. And then reality starts to shift. Right. And I think it's shifting right now. I think it's really shifting right now. And again, this has happened before in history. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we just believed everything revolved around the earth 
that this was the main planet of the entire universe. <laughs> it was just us and, and Jupiter and a couple other planets that you could see with the naked eye. That was it. Everything went around the Earth, including the sun, until people, you know, a couple natural philosophers pointed out uh, that's not the simplest way to look at it. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, really, to look at it that way. It's too complex. You know, that model worked, that, he, that uh, Ptolemaic model of the Earth being the center of the universe, you could make it mathematically work. Mm -hmm. It would predict the motions of Mars and Jupiter and the other planets that were Venus, right? You had yeah. to have all these little things called epicycles in there, these other rotations, and these right. things called equants and deference. And I learned about this from James Wooden's book, The Discovery of Science, which is a great book about how just the whole idea of science had to be invented. People actually had to want to look at an alternative mm -hmm. explanation to Aristotle. Aristotle ruled for like over a thousand years this way of thinking. And it was this what people said, just do what Aristotle did. You don't have to question. It doesn't matter if you see anything different. It's not what Aristotle said or <laughs> the church. And if they didn't say it, it doesn't exist. It doesn't matter. The experience didn't matter. And it took a while. What Wooden says is it took a while before evidence actually mattered, which is why things like the, the microscope, Luane Hook invents this microscope in like the 1600s, and no one looks through it for 150 years because they just figure, well, why? <laughs> we already know it's going on. It's just for humors, the, you know, the, when bloodletting, all that, mm -hmm. that was the main treatment, and it was just this imbalance of the four fluids in your body. We don't need new evidence. So we actually have to want to, it's, we're going through the same thing right now. We actually have to want to look at the evidence. And so I think, you know, it does, the, these, these changes do happen every so often where you have people come along and they propose another way of looking at things. And that means also a willingness to look at the evidence um, and then to come to a conclusion. And I think we're in one of those time periods right now where we wouldn't have this conversation mm -hmm. because society went through this in the past. I mean, the heliocentric idea was really resisted. Galileo was put under house arrest. Copernicus didn't even want to publish this while he was alive. Can you imagine us saying, okay, Let's have this conversation, Simeon, but let's we're not going to air it till we're both passed on because we're afraid of the content. That's what it's like. And we don't have to we know it's changed because we yeah. can have this conversation right now without fear of the secret police. Well, even that's happened with UFOs where it's been like deathbed confessions about you know, right. UFOs and things the government did. Yeah, yeah, this is this is what it's been. I've I've talked to people like this. I've talked to people that don't even want to go public. I, I've talked to people that have had proof positive evidence of some materials, technologies, craft that have been here that they tell me cannot be made on Earth. The materials are not what we have here, the zero G environment, the, the density of electronic structures in there are far too dense for what we can do with our equipment. Mm -hmm. And they tell me they're 100% certain it's from another part of the galaxy. 100%. No doubt. And these are the people that would know these are really high level engineers and so forth. They've never come public. And I, I, I couldn't get them to do interviews publicly. They would tell me, you know, like at a conference over a buffet dinner, mm -hmm. the most amazing stuff. I mean, we're not talking about philosophy. We're talking about people from Silicon Valley, okay, who've seen this stuff. The government comes to them and says, can you tell us how this works? Every 10 years, apparently, the government digs all these Roswell records yeah. out of the basement. Yep. And they bring it around, they shop it around, see maybe science is caught up and we can... <laughs> you know, exploit this technology. If it wasn't already, I don't know if Corso is correct. Maybe we already got some technologies out of the Roswell wreckage, but there's more than there's more than Roswell. 
anyway, so there are people out there that know this. So, Gary, what I think it is, is uh, like you're saying, do we need to wait mm -hmm. for people to be on their deathbeds to talk about what's happened? Or um, can we talk about it now? Because the witnesses are out there. And this is what the citizen hearing demonstrated in Steve Bassett. As Steve said, for every witness here at the citizen hearing, there were 40. He goes, there's 100 behind them and 100 behind those. And more. It keeps going. There's just so many witnesses out there. We're just, this is just 40 out of 1,000. But will C-SPAN turn the cameras on <laughs> so that the American public can hear it? Or are we just going to pretend like it's... I mean, you can't continue that way forever. I, I worked in, in uh, Vienna, Austria during the, during the Cold War, right at the end. Uh, at an east-west institute that was set up by Nixon and Brezhnev, okay? And it was set up so that Soviet Union and U.S. could agree on something to work together. Uh, it's not a bad idea, climate change, something mm -hmm. that was neutral, that didn't involve military conflict. It's a good idea. We could get our scientists together, and we could work together. And it was a lot of fun working with Soviet mathematicians, you know, my age, in the 20, when I was in my 20s. And uh, it was a long time ago. But that's the year that East Germany ceased to exist. Oh, I mean, and it, yeah, the wall came down, but mm -hmm. it started. It started right there in Vienna, when the Hungarians, the Hungarian government, just all of a sudden on their own. This is how easy it can be. It's not hard. The Hungarians said, "Okay, we're we're sick of this wall." They were part of the Iron Curtain, Hungary, so they said, "We're just not enforcing the border anymore. What are you going to do?" So they cut. Yeah. I went up to the border. They cut the barbed wire. The guard posts were empty. It went down through some lake right there, not far from Vienna to the south. The border between Hungary and oh. Austria. Previously, there was a fence in the middle, or like a guard post. There were guard posts in the middle of the lake, wow. and and it was they were on. So these Germans come over on vacation to Vienna and say, "Well, we're not going home. We're staying. We like it better in the West. We're not going back." And and people, more and more East Germans started going to Hungary which was part of these blocks so they could have permission to travel there, but they just never went home. They just went, went right across into Austria on the train. And all of a sudden, you know, that caused people in East Germany to wonder, well, what's this wall doing here? If people are just leaving. And it, it disappeared that night in December of 89, not from a true story. There was a rumor put up, put up by it. It was, it was a news report from an Italian news station that the guards were letting people through the wall that night, the East German guards. And it wasn't true, but so <laughs> many people showed up. At the, remember this? So many people showed up at the wall that the, the, the guards said, what do we do? And their higher ups, and there were like hundreds of thousands of people at the wall <laughs> wanting to go through. They just said, well, let them through. And that was the end of East Germany. <laughs> the, that was the end of it. But it started with a country on the periphery mm -hmm. opening up the gates. So I can imagine this UFO. I can, a lot of these topics, I mean, I think will all come out at the same time. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of a lot of material here, but I think it'll a lot of material for us to digest as a society. That's, but I think it'll come sooner than you think just the way that east germany nobody expected that to happen in 89 i certainly didn't go over no that i didn't expect it nobody expected it and i didn't think those would be the last east germans i ever spoke to <laughs> in my life because their country merged with west germany and it's you know over a period of a couple of years and they ceased to exist as a country and then the soviet union ceased to exist it was a domino effect a reverse domino effect yeah back in 
towards the middle of the empire. And uh, so I think these changes can happen faster than people expect. And, um, and that means, you know, you could be encountering things sooner than you think. You could be encountering things. I know we're running out of time. I have one last question for you. Oh, sure, sure. Go ahead. If this happens, when we find out, what would be the benefit? Well, I think it's just at a basic human level, we deserve the right to know what sort of universe multiverse we live in. Mm -hmm. I think at just a spiritual level, it'll give us a sense of ease because the types of experiences that people have every day, they don't know how to... Uh, process but at a global level i mean i think maybe people like reagan were right is that if we find out that there's other entities out there humanoids it would make us realize we have a lot more in common with each other more in common than different wouldn't that be fantastic peace might break out <laughs> we could use that <laughs> how about that peace might break out and then there's obviously technological implications mm -hmm. because we're we, we're all living right now on a, an economy and a technological system that's based on carbon extraction. It creates pollution. You know, it's expensive. And uh, it's limited. So, obviously, in the long term, the idea would be to have technologies that allow us to live in a way that's more harmonious with the planet. It's not so destructive. So that we're not just using up all these resources and creating pollution and conditions that, you know, wipe out other species. I don't mm -hmm. think anyone agrees that that's a good idea to wipe out the other denizens of the planet, some of whom we don't even know very well. Right. That are going extinct before we've even met them for the most part. You know, that's kind of sad. And they've been here a long time. And so, you know, we're creating these environmental catastrophes on the planet that could be avoided, perhaps, if we weren't using carbon-based fuels, if we had resources, energy, right, from nature the way it is, cold fusion, low-energy nuclear reaction, Lenner, as it's called. I think those are, based on all my research, those are absolutely real technologies. Maybe they're not quite ready to go today as an energy source. Maybe we're not ready for that either. But you think like dark matter and dark energy could provide us energy that's free from they do they do and i know this for a fact because there was a ukrainian lenner cold fusion company called proton 21 thermodynamics that was bought by the u.s department of energy and it's relocated to oak ridge national labs if you don't think this cold fusion lenner is real why is the department of energy buying up a foreign company all 100 of its scientists and employees and moving it to the u.s it's pretty good indication. And what Proton 21 said in their literature before their website was taken down, you can still find it on the Wayback Machine. Their website literally was taken down from the web, Proton 21. Very smart bunch of guys, scientist Adamenko Visotsky, very smart people, right there, Gary, right in their first either interviews. They talk about dark matter interacting with our matter, dark matter pro propelling cold fusion Lenner reactions, dark matter objects and energy structures that would absorb a bullet. I can see why the government wanted to absorb them. 
because they talked about creating materials that were a whole different type of materials. I mean, really use your imagination here. Materials that are based on dark matter. It's literally what they said. We're not talking science fiction here. This was a top-level energy company that realized, and other scientists of, real, of, of Matsumoto in Japan and Parkamov in Russia have said the same thing, is that we're interacting with this neutrino-verse. Boyd mm -hmm. Bushman from Lockheed Martin talked about the neutrino-verse interacting with gravity. So we know at this level, if we can, inter you know, control these interactions with neutrinos, which are super abundant in the universe and come from the cosmos all the time and are bosonic, which means they encourage uh, physical reactions to happen mm -hmm. versus moving apart fermionic, more like electrons. This there's energy possibilities there that uh, really get us over the, the, the hump in terms of getting self-organizing sustainable energy sources that could supply our energy needs using neutrinos using dark matter we now know that low energy nuclear reaction based on all my research is something that is catalyzed by dark matter not all of dark matter we're talking about just a tiny part of it but you just, it's so there's so much dark matter you only need the relic neutrinos it's enough to catalyze these reactions and uh, you know, you get beyond these thermodynamic limits, the second law entropy, which oh, the people will always argue, well, this is like a perpetual motion machine. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. Not if you include the energy you're getting from relic neutrinos. Relic neutrinos contribute a lot of energy to biological and physical chemical processes on Earth. Mm. And uh, Alexander Parkhamov in his book, Space Earth Human, which I, I, you know, I read a lot of before I published Dark Matter Monsters, uh, he argues that you can show variations, and this is really mind-blowing. You can show variations in chemical, biological, even radioactive decay processes, which are supposed to be constant. I mean, they're, they're random, but the di distribution is constant of the decay rates. It changes based on exposure to where we are in the cosmos, the positions of other galaxies, because because dark matter... You talked about gravity earlier. Mm -hmm. It's, it flows and fluxes around other galaxies. And there's even this idea in remote viewing, which we talked about right at the beginning of the show, sidereal time, local sidereal, that our position relative to the Virgo constellation affects remote viewing accuracy. And I've seen the charts of this from people that ran SRI, the remote viewing research program in Palo, mm -hmm. Palo Alto, SRI which was a government special access program for a while. And Ed argued to us that he could see the variation and it's apparently by a factor of four in remote viewing accuracy, depending on whether the earth is facing that Virgo cluster or facing away, which is very consistent with the idea that there's these flows of cosmic particles and where, you know, we're facing away from it. The earth is shielding you, right? If you're facing towards it, mm -hmm. it's bosonic, it's increasing the interactions. It's really interesting stuff. It deserves a lot more research, but it's very interesting that companies like Proton 21, which have now gone dark because they were so good at what they were doing, were talking about this openly about creating dark matter structures. Also, Ken Shoulders, who work at SRI, a guy that invented microelectronic masking techniques for circuit boards and things for, for the NSA, by the way, way back in the 60s. His whole research towards the end of the life was these exotic vacuum objects, charge clusters, dark matter, uh, how this all works, like a fifth state of matter. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at right now is the, are there other states of matter beyond these ordinary states of matter that we're used to that interact more with dark matter that are coherent, <clears throat> invisible some of the times, create orbs, mm-hmm. ball lightning, other life forms may be using this, UFOs, so forth. So I think there's a lot of really exciting science on the horizon. You know, as long as we are willing to be open to it, and this gets back to the argument again, are we willing to engage with this evidence and this reality? Or do we just want to stay like ostriches with our head in the sand, pretending everything is the way we were taught when we were in kindergarten? I'm willing to go the new direction. Sure, we don't know where it's going to lead us. But isn't that a lot more exciting and fun every day to wake up with all these possibilities than with the same old, same old? Because we know that same old, same old is getting older every day at this point, <laughs> right? Uh, I've always believed in all this ever since I was a kid. I just felt that this was like when I was a kid. Like how, how I got interested. I was a kid. I watched um, the show with Leonard, Leonard Nimoy in search of. Yeah, right. And, and after that, I was just hooked. I was like, God, there's all this stuff that I probably don't know. Or, right. You know, yeah. and, and, and I always always had that in my head since I was a kid. Yeah, I grew up with Star Trek. I remember watching Star Trek on our black and white TV before we had a color TV. And that was the same thing. It was just really like, wow. You know, each of those episodes were like really inspiring for a five-year-old. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So it turns out that's reality. Mm -hmm. That Star Trek is closer to reality than we thought. And a lot of the concepts in there were, seemed ahead of their time. And now, you know, we're being told you could create teleporters like that. I mean, eventually. And so far, only molecules have been teleported. But, uh, you know, I don't know if we'd want teleporters exactly like that. But that sort of those sort of ideas are actually based somehow in reality. And, uh, again, it gets back to your idea that imagination is we're really seeing other realities when we use our imagination. But I say it's high time that we all go into this reality. We push our representatives in Washington to ask the hard questions, to find out what to... I think, here's how this has to start. We have to know what's been going on the past 70 years, Roswell and before. Don't you think? What, what is the story here? Absolutely. Like, like that hand. last disclosure thing, you know, I, I was hoping that it would... You know, say like, yeah, Roswell was real. We have the craft. But oh, at that hearing, yeah, but that's not <laughs> talking about that hearing in May. Yeah, it was, yeah, exactly right. I mean, there you are in front of Congress. What are they waiting for? And now they're just trying to rewrite history, call them UAPs. They 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 don't mention anything before two thousand. Yeah. You know, it's such a limited number of sightings. Exactly. So they have this hearing in Washington. We all watched it, right? Mm-hmm. You think this is going to be it? They're going to say we have the Roswell craft at Wright-Patterson or the bodies or the creatures or whatever. Uh, and I met a witness who said her dad flew the, the, the some, some some of the stuff from Roswell to Wright-Patterson. I worked at Bell Labs and one of the scientists there, he was the older oh, guy did? at the time. This is like in the 90s. I guess it was like around uh-huh. 99, 90, yeah, 99. And he, he was outside smoking a pipe. <laughs> And I smoked cigarettes back then, and he was telling me that that, that the idea for fiber optics came from reverse engineering a UFO. At Roswell? Yeah. 
Wow. So he re so he confirmed what Corso said in the day yes. after Roswell. Day. Yes. Yes. Because before this is before I have you heard of Corso's guy. This is the ninth or ninety nine this guy. Before Corso published his book, this guy said Bell Labs got it from UFOs. Yes. <laughs> because that was always the counter argument, Gary. And he was very Bell nonchalant Labs about it too. Like, like he didn't yeah. care about telling people. And he told you that. Yeah. I mean the guy had to be like eighty. No, I've encountered people like this, and I encountered one of these witnesses who said her dad on his deathbed. You're talking about deathbed confessions. On his death, two weeks before he dies, he calls each daughter one at a time into the room. Said, I didn't want to tell you, but I was the guy that flew. I was one of the planes that flew wreckage back since there was a lot of it. Hmm. And there were guards in the plane. There was a guard in the plane to guard the contents from the pilots who were, wow. you know, nuclear qualified pilots held over from World War II hmm. who were qualified to drop atomic bombs. These are the types of pilots you had. At, it was the only nuclear base at the time. So these were the pilots you had at Roswell, the ones that could drop nukes, uh, as happened to Japan mm-hmm. at the end of World War II, right? Yeah. And she told me that he said I was afraid there'd be repercussions against the family if I talked about it, but there were crates of stuff and I never got to see it. There was a guard guarding it and he never left the crates. Mm-hmm. And we flew this circuitous route. First we went to uh, Texas and then we eventually ended up at Wright-Patterson. And he didn't know what was in the boxes, but he said it had to be important to have a guard guarding it. No, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's not polyethylene balloons, right? So, um, so yeah, it, it's really high time to examine all this. What's our history here? And all these people like you, met these scientists, why don't we get them all together in the same room in front of Congress and have a hearing, right, mm-hmm. under oath, and subpoena them so they have to tell the truth, right, and don't have to, you know, hide behind these security oaths that they probably took at some point, right? This is, I think this is what has to happen. It has to open up. We could all breathe easier after this. Let's hear what the reality is. Because until we know our own history about this, I just don't feel any of this current effort that we hear about. Just like we were talking about this hearing last May, where they say, well, we'll talk about that in closed session this afternoon. The USO. Someone just mentions the USOs, underwater submerged objects. Mm-hmm. You've heard about them. You've talked to people in the subservice in the Navy. They talk about these things. And yet that question immediately says, okay, we're not, I don't want to talk about it. Well, I think we have a right to hear about this. What sort of, and again, it goes back to this whole discussion we've had this afternoon. Do we want to know what reality we live in? Or do we want to play this game, this sort of childish version of reality where we don't want to admit any of this has happened? Because I think that's really dull. It's like that movie Pleasantville where it starts out in black and white. (laughs) I really don't want to go back in black and white. No. Having grown up. That's where we're going if we don't insist. And there's some good representatives out there who are calling, even on in in the press, even on some of the media channels. This is what it's going to take. And I I mean, what's what's the worst that could happen? I mean, it's our own history, you know. What are they hiding at this point? I can't figure it out. The only argument I've heard, Gary, from people who are, you know, who think of it in military terms is it might give our adversaries some technological advantage. Mm. One of my other theories is telepathy. I think yes. I, I think we all have 
the ability to use telepathy if we practice it, you know, like any other muscle. And if we're able to use telepathy, then that makes it a lot more difficult for people to hide their thoughts and their intentions to control other people. Right, right, right. Maybe that's it. I mean, it's a simple one. Could be. I'm with you on that one. Uh, I One of the stories I'd mentioned in Dark Matter Monsters is this former Pentagon official who was, uh, you know, even put in charge of the Pentagon as Secretary of Defense for a number of weeks before the official person could be sworn in. And he told me that they, he just told me this at an RV conference where I met him and his wife. He said he was in an intelligence group that monitored a Soviet PK experiment where a Soviet PK sender bent a spoon a thousand miles away in Moscow. Hmm. And I said, isn't that like a news story or something? He goes, no, no, we can't, we can't talk about it. Sources and methods, you know. And he said, it's really serious uh, that we don't reveal how we pick this up from other countries. I, I get that. The surveillance method. No right. country wants to reveal this to another. But still, that is, the U.S. government knows for a fact that PK is real, that some people can bend objects at a distance. SRI existed. I mean, even Yuri Geller was part of it. Yuri Geller. Yuri Geller. I've been trying to get him on, actually. (laughs) You should. You should come on your He doesn't want to do do shows, I don't think, anymore. Well, we should should get him on your show here. Yuri Geller was the first experiment there. Before Ingo Swan, they had Yuri Geller Mm -hmm. come over. And in the in that movie Third Eye Spies about remote viewing, which is a great art yeah, movie, that see everyone it. should see that the best one to date. They show all of his results. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, you get the you get the bonuses at the end if you buy it, mm-hmm. and you get those extra bonuses at the end, and it's worth it because you see that documentary that SRI produced of his results. Yeah. You, you saw it. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's 10 out of 10 hits on those objects that they put in a box. And he was able to bend things and do other things at other times. Even Kit Green said that Yuri Geller just did some amazing things. Well, you know, they had Yuri Geller at SRI and they call up Kit Green, who's at the, you know, the spook desk at CIA. That's the guy there who would be open to this stuff. And he just says, okay, describe what's in my office. And Yuri says, you know, I'm getting something like scrambled eggs. It's not like architecture of the brain. Mm-hmm. And that's what Kit was looking at right when he saw that. <laughs> it was said architecture of the brain. Right. And Kit said he almost fell out of his floor. I mean, he's off his chair. He's looking around. There's our cameras. I mean, that's how startling it could be, someone like Yuri. But how did Yuri start in all of this? Yuri tells us he was followed by a ball of light in the courtyard of his apartment complex, something like that. That's interesting. You know, that's one of the things, too, that you talk about in your title, your is ball lightning. Yeah. One time, this is a weird story. I was at my brother's house at a family function, sitting on the couch with a bunch of family members. I'm sitting next to my grandmother. This ball of lightning comes through the door, around the corner, it goes in and out another door. But the only two people who saw it were me and my grandmother. Nobody else that was sitting there saw it. Nobody else saw it. They could was it would have been it would have been visible to them, but they didn't. see Absolutely, it should have been visible to them. There's no That's, way to miss it. It's just like cryptids. Is sometimes people will see them on a trail, and the other people from another angle won't. 
Well, that's how I connect it, too, is there's a lot of similarities mm -hmm. between ball lightning and cryptids uh, to some extent. Hmm. And yeah, ball lightning is a very interesting, it's coherent matter where the particles are all at the same frequency and they, they, they don't have any individual identity. They just form one big electron or what other particle it's made of. And uh, there's a lot of energy in ball lightning and it does weird things. Yeah, it seems to move steered. around. It's, it's what? It steered its way around and out the other door. It, it seems to it seems to know now the the scientific explanation of why ball lightning seems to move so precisely, it even follows people, is that it's following static gradients. It's so sensitive, it's such a finely tuned thing, that it's very sensitive to electrostatic gradients, mm -hmm. which is why it's seen going down the aisle of a plane sometimes, right between the seats. It's sort of following this gradient. And it nobody totally knows. I mean, the hard-boiled scientists would say it's just very sensitive to electrostatic charges. It's following them. But when you see it move around like you did, mm -hmm. it, it seems like it knows what it's doing. Yeah, like what if it's consciousness? <laughs> it might be. I, you can't rule it out. It just we know the studies of ball lightning going back hundreds of years have all commented on this, how precisely it seems to move around a room. And uh, occasionally it can explode, as you know. And uh, but other times it seems innocuous. Mm -hmm. It's a range of characteristics, but that is what coherent matter is. It's a it's a type of matter where all the particles are correlated. It's like a macroscopic quantum object, and all the particles are intercorrelated, and it has a fractal signature. When all the particles are correlated like that, it's uh, what Parkhamov calls flicker noise. In other words, it doesn't react to things in a linear way like we're used to with mm -hmm. our technology. A small change could cause a big effect in ball lightning. It's very almost impossible to predict what it's going to do. And it's seen around these cryptids. It's seen around UFOs. So it's definitely part and parcel of these phenomena in some way. Yeah, yeah. The other thing, too... You know, you mentioned the guys at the missile base, you know, who, you know, they have to, you know, say that, the, you know, the nuclear stuff was turned off. I wonder sometimes, too, if, if we fire nukes in this, in our dimension, does it ripple effect into other dimensions and affect them? And that's why some of them, other beings in the dark matter dimensions might be concerned. I think so. I think it's a really good possibility. Hmm. That it's affecting them. It you know it's affecting the structure of space time, and wherever they are in space time, it's affecting them in some way. Yeah, like gosh, stop creating potholes on our side. Yeah, it's creating space time potholes. Mm -hmm. it must must be the reason why they're so interested in our nukes. And I don't think it's as some people think to save us. I don't think they're going to step in and save us. But maybe for their own self-preservation, they uh, just figure, okay, we're taking the matches away from the humans. <laughs> they're going to burn the house down. Yeah, yeah. And they don't realize we're in the house too. So we're if just they're sitting on top of us or underneath us, we're a problem. Yeah, I think that just that, okay, so that topic alone is so huge of UFOs and nukes. It's such a complex, interesting topic that we haven't touched because of national security reasons. Because no government anywhere is going to admit that their nukes aren't going to fire. 
right? Right. Properly. If there's been tampering or even unintentional effects on these weapon systems from the proximity of the UFOs. I mean, it's a really complex, important issue. And the missile control launch officers that I've talked to, the ones the ones who are guards, I did an interview with a guy named Gary Sterling from the Aurora, Denver area. Mm-hmm. And he, he was a guard at uh, Minot in the 70s. And he told me that he was sent out with his buddy in the, in the truck their jeep to see what was setting the alarms off several times in the same day and they encountered a huge object shooting straight up from the silo that was blinding and he got burned they all got burned on the right side of their bodies and then the air force attempted to hypnotize them and you're thinking are there hypnotists at an air force base well i happened to run into someone who a psychiatrist psychologist who told me he was offered the job in the 70s as a hypnotist at Minot and turned it down. Hmm. So it confirmed what Gary had told me. So Gary said he wasn't a very good hypnosis subject, but they did tell him, if you know it's good for you, you won't talk about this to the press or anyone else. So uh, it, just like Terry Lovelace in his mm-hmm. book, Incident Devil's Den. Yeah. Have you had Terry on the show? A couple of times. Yeah. So it's just like yeah. Terry's story. And I've, ta- and I've talked to Terry off the air, too, or he has some even more interesting things to say. Yeah, Terry, you know. Terry, you know, his story, the same thing. They, Brad, the psychologist, tries to hypnotize him, and, and, and Terry resists it internally. He says, you're going to forget about all this. And Terry remembers it all one day. It all comes back to him mm-hmm. during a routine x-ray when they find embedded metal samples in his body. Um, and it's a very interesting story, Terry. But it's the same, you, you know, you just from reading his book, Incident Devil's Den, everyone should read that. Yeah, because it's just a very straightforward account of how you're going to be treated by the military if you've had an experience like this. And uh, they're basically going to tell you it never happened. And not only that, you're never going to talk to the other guy who you're with that it happened to. They separate him. Uh, And in Terry's case, it's very sad that his buddy Toby ended up passing away from apparently from alcoholism after the event. Yeah. no, this is very serious stuff. We need to know what's going on with this, and I think we'd all feel a lot better. <clears throat> so, what it, do you what do you think about Luis Alejandro? Do you think I've that heard, that that he's really out there trying to bring out the truth, or do you think he's disinformation? Luis has a lot to say about these topics. There's some discrepancy which we still haven't resolved. I appreciate what Elizondo and Mellon have done since they've come forward at the same time, right? And they brought a lot of this to our attention. But I just feel, and they would probably agree, they're also just one of many people who've been involved in this field who've played a role in bringing it to our attention. And we have to keep moving forward from it. It's not about the particular individual personalities. Mm -hmm. I think my question is, Based on what I read in Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, was there an ATIP program at all? Or, uh, I mean, Luis Elizondo said that he was in charge of this ATIP program, but we're told that ATIP was a nickname for OSAP. That and 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 even Hal Putoff said the same thing at his 2018 presentation in Vegas that ATIP was an unclassified name that could be mentioned in public for OSAP, which they it wasn't classified, but they didn't want it to become public. So they called it a tip. So was 
Elizondo involved in that program. I just have some questions that still haven't been resolved in my mind about what was there an ATIP program? Was it a different program that he called ATIP? So I have some questions about some of the things he've said, but I also feel like he, it does seem like he's pushed pretty hard to get people in Congress to pay attention to this. That's my understanding based on everything I've heard him say. Yes. He's done that. Yeah, I think it's moving forward because he and Mellon have been mm-hmm. pushing hard. I mean, if you have someone like Christopher Mellon, who's a former DOD high-level official, right? Third down at the Pentagon. he And he's telling us day in and day out, this is serious. This matters. We sh- need to pay attention to this. We have to get past this bureaucratic intransigency and resistance. And we need to know what's going on because it's affecting pilots up there. I believe him. And, you know, uh, I'm sure there's other people like Mellon that we haven't heard from. But, I mean, if you have people like that who quit over this, it tells us how serious this uh, subject really is. And I have a feeling it's extremely serious just from the types of incidents I've heard about. I, You know, just like I mentioned, the PK uh, event in the Soviet Union that, 30 people, I'm told, were present in a room when they heard the spoon bend. I mean, they heard the experimenters and and they knew that the spoon had bent. But how much else has happened around us that's been classified? Crash retrievals, right? Yeah. Could have happened. The witnesses are definitely silenced in one way or another. I mean, it's that serious. Uh, And this affects communities where this happens, where people aren't told what was really going on. Uh, look at that new movie from uh, James Fox, Moment of Contact, uh, about the Vargina incident in 1996. I heard Roger Lear talk about this many times, but it's really amazing. In this movie, there's witnesses that Lear never met from the military who still won't talk. They have one right there, and they go right up to his uh, house in Brazil, and he just talks to the window, says, get out of here, I'm going to start shooting at you guys. And he was a witness to one of these creatures that they were able to grab and bring into a vehicle before they took it to the hospital. And the person that grabbed it ended up dying of an infection over a period of a couple of weeks after that. So it ended up killing him, touching, physically touching this. But there was mm-hmm. another person in the vehicle, and this person wouldn't say anything to this day. So that shows us how serious this is. What about that case? You know, I'm perfectly open to these new cases that pilots are experiencing, Navy pilots, maybe Air Force pilots. But what about these big cases where it affected entire communities? And to this day, the people feel like they're afraid of talking. That's pretty serious. It has a chilling effect. Yeah. And again, to go back to your question from about half an hour ago, why does it matter? I think if we have a better grasp on reality, we'll be more satisfied, happier people that are better able to take care of the planet and not live in such a destructive way. I just think it's the natural order of things to understand what's around you and to work with it in a productive, positive way. You can't do that if you don't know what you're dealing with, because then there's this fear. And as soon as some one of these things shows up, people panic and they just go crazy. And if we just accepted there's other types of humanoids around, just for starters, I think uh, I, I this gets into the whole cryptids area. I mean, there is no public discussion about this, and yet people encounter Bigfoot, dogmen, like creatures 
all the time mm -hmm. in North America, and they don't know where to go to talk about it. They're always told they saw a bear. The law enforcement doesn't know how to deal with it because it's not, they don't know if they're dealing with a person or not, if it's even in their jurisdiction. And it's like in this gray zone. And then people get terrified. They don't want to go back in the woods. They don't want to be out alone in areas where there's, you know, just a lot of nature. And I don't think that has to be happening. You know, I just think if we had a more realistic discussion of what's out there and that you can encounter these creatures anytime you go out your door, pretty much. Mm -hmm. then we kind of accept it and deal with it just like, you know, there's other there's raccoons out there and all sorts of things you could encounter when you go out <laughs> to take your garbage. I mean, <laughs> not the end of the world, but I don't think the way we deal with it is very productive. Yeah. To just deny that. And, and what about all these National Park Service rangers, which we are told have encountered these creatures out there? Or whatever they are. Maybe they're, some of them are human. Human hybrids or something. Some, something that we're, we don't even have quite the words to describe. Mm -hmm. And the missing people that go missing out there. I mean, I think we should know what's actually happening out there. Because then people just encounter this. They don't know what they're dealing with. And, you know, it's traumatic. And uh, they feel traumatized. They don't want to go out at night anymore. They don't want to go camping anymore and take a walk. And so I think the responsible way to deal with this is just to have a national discussion about it. I've seen the documents from National Forest Service, people who've worked there, the photos of these Bigfoot reporting forms. I mean, the National Forest Services know about this, and so does the National Park Service. They must. And they just, it's just like the UFO thing for me. They just, let's pretend it doesn't exist. It's rare enough that we don't have to deal with it, so let's kick the can down the road and let another administration deal with this, right? Mm -hmm. It's extra work. <laughs> I'm, I'm told, I've read stories where it seems that they've even encountered bodies and things, and they've just preferred just to bury them right there on the spot rather than report it to their superiors in the park service. And so that means we don't really have a good grasp of our own history. You know, how, how are we related? How are we related to these cryptids? It's a really another big story is the, are these some sort of uh, hybrids? Are we the hybrids? Are mm -hmm. we the hybrids of them? Maybe they're the natural life forms and we're the hybrids. And they feel like their place, and we're the weirdos. I don't know. Well, that's but, one of the curiosities, too, that I have is, you know, why are humans bipedal? When all the other animals that have evolved on this planet run on four legs, humans run on two, which is, not, really, which is not the optimal way to be on a planet with this much gravity. Right, right. It doesn't make sense. The naked ape. Well, I guess we were told at some point we stood up, but we don't know how that happened. And we know that Bigfoot stood up and so did Dogman and other cryptids like them. You know, what we have in common with these cryptid animals, cryptid creatures or life forms, whatever they turn out to be, is that they're bipedal also. Mm -hmm. So that's the weird thing about it. And I think why we're reluctant to talk about it. We got used to being the only, only bipedal creature. Which is weird right? to begin with. We shouldn't be. Right. And it's very we don't, hard. We don't, we don't want to look at that part of it. Yeah, I don't know exactly how that happened. It's a good question. But how did these other creatures also ended up 
being bipedal and what's mm-hmm. our relationship to them. Um, there's some big gaps here in our knowledge. And uh, I don't know. It's just my bias. I would rather know than not know. Don't you think? I'd rather know what the, what, what the heck's going on here. I do, too. That's why I and do And I'm not afraid to go out and hike. And Yeah, you too. I'm not afraid to go out there. And I, I've hiked a lot, backpacked by myself. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to encounter anything out there. I'm not afraid of anything out there. But I'm open. I'm respectful out there. I'm careful. Mm-hmm. You know? I'm, and now I have to admit, I'm looking around a lot more than I used to. I'm looking around because I've heard too many witnesses tell me, including a nurse that treated a lot of loggers, old timers from the backwoods in the Northwest, that they would see these Bigfoot creatures peek their heads out around a trunk, go back. And when they went to look for them, there wasn't anything behind the tree. They disappeared. Right. I have a guest, Carter Bushart. And he, oh, yeah. And, and he, his theory is that they somehow merged with the tree. That seems to be what happens. Now, why? I don't know exactly the physics behind that, but I'm sure it has something to do with fractals. I'm sure it's going to go back to fractals and frequencies. They do seem to merge with the tree. I know. To an ordinary hard-boiled scientist, that would seem like heretical. It would just seem like crazy, but that's what the witnesses say they see. Well, it makes sense, too. Camouflage is one of nature's you know, oldest tricks. Yeah, and there's a name for it in science called dynamic transparency. Um, they're animals that are good. So, at, so why wouldn't nature start manipulating physics to do this? Right. It, do it, that. Seems log- it seems logical, doesn't it? Yeah. We just can't accept that we don't do it or we don't know how to do it. And someone else <laughs> can do it. And they can do it and we can't. Because I've heard enough reports of these creatures morphine and looking like a pile of logs boulders and tree stumps mm-hmm. which are not like they're not super convincing tree stumps but they're enough if you walked by and weren't really paying attention you'd keep going how do they do that and how do they just disappear in a moment have you ever had ron moorhead on the show a couple of times yes yeah so ron i mean so he always says these bigfoot should have cast shadows from the angle which they heard them talking outside mm-hmm. their wood structure they should have cast shadows there were cracks in the boards of their hunting structure. They could see sunlight. These There should have been something like, you and I stand there, we're going to mm-hmm. cast a shadow. They can hear them. You can hear the recordings. It's yeah, I know. Serious. I've heard them. Very close. There's nothing visible, but mm-hmm. you can hear them chattering. So what we've got are cloaking bipeds. Yeah. You know, morphing cloaking bipeds that when they're visible look really hairy and tall. And somewhat primate-like. And when they don't want to be seen, they can be like this. You won't see them. They'll be like Predator in the the Predator movies. Maybe a shimmer mm-hmm. of something. But light's going to go through it. Uh, light goes through other things. I mean, you know, you worked at Bell Labs. There's metamaterials. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of naturally occurring metamaterials in the, the, the morphos butterfly that looks blue. But it's not from blue dye. It's from light refraction. And so nature has a way of being incredibly inventive. I'm sure it did this with Sasquatch too. Mm. Why we're not like that and how we're related, that's the big story. And that's why I think we don't know about this. I don't think you're going to get people in these institutions that feel like they're at the top of their game. Want, they don't want to be humbled by something that they don't have any clue what it is. It's, it's ego. 
And I can tell you, as someone who came out of academics, this mm. is what it is. You got your degree, you have your publications. Yeah. All that yeah. stuff. You get your awards occasionally, you win prizes, and you start building this professional ego. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it depends hurts. on it. Your financing depends on it. Your financing depends on it. Your mortgage, tenure, all that shit. All of it. It's a lifetime plan. <laughs> like that song by the Little River Band, right? <laughs> talking about a lifetime plan. <laughs> Hurry, don't be late. I can hardly wait. <laughs> yeah, that little, little Little River Band song from, the, from Australia, right? Mm-hmm. So, talking about a lifetime plan. This is what happens to professionals. And I'm not trying to be mean to anyone who's a professional out there. I mean, I got a PhD too. But it can hinder your ability to talk the truth, to engage the truth, and eventually become blinded by your own hubris, mm-hmm. by your own success in these institutions, which are just these self-perpetuating things which will one day disappear too. And so you're playing the game and you've got the grants and you're on the gravy train. You don't really want anything to upset that. And eventually, I think, to be honest, you'll have to admit you're not willing to engage risky topics anymore because it could damage your funding prospects in the future. I mean, you'll know this is someone who worked at Bell Labs. This is going to hurt your funding prospects who's going to work with you. Now, personally, I've chosen to go the other way just to be as stigmatized as possible, go into as many controversial topics and not shy away from anything. And I'm really glad I did because every day I wake up, it's like freaking fascinating. Like, what am I going to learn today that's going to blow open my mind? And every day is really fascinating mm-hmm. that day. Uh, every day, it's amazing to what I learned. And I wouldn't have written a book like Dark Matter Monsters. And my first one was called Opening Minds for a reason. Hello. Because <laughs> I went to the crop circles and we saw our batteries and cameras go out over and over. Cameras and batteries failed. I could not explain that. And it wasn't until I learned more about dark matter and so forth that it started to make sense what those patterns would be funneling, channeling, lensing energy. Uh, orbs and so forth but uh anyway there it's it's a whole fascinating universe of, of phenomena out there we should be engaging it you know like star trek engage yeah when you're on the helm of this of this of the enterprise you engage you don't just run away <laughs> to back to the safety of your little bureaucratic cubby hole right. because that's it. i don't know that's not who i am it's all set so so thanks for having a show like this having all these great people on Carter Bruchard's books, by the way, are excellent. Anyone interested in Bigfoot, you you have to read Carter's books. He's telling you the truth there about what he's experienced, his witnesses. Each (laughs) case is more mind-blowing than the next. The gifty, the weird stuff that happens. (laughs) You know, Carter's so low-key. Yeah, he comes on a show like once a month he comes on almost. Oh, good, good. Yeah, because he, he you might not have heard of him if you weren't in this area. He doesn't really promote himself a lot. Mm But his two books I've read so far, I'm still on the second one. They're just great accounts of people out in Arkansas, Missouri, and what they've experienced out there. He has pictures yeah. that you haven't seen on the I, internet. I, I've got I've got the picture that's going to be in his his third book that is unbelievable. Oh, I can't I can't say what it is, and I've seen it, and I would say it might be the best evidence I've seen since the uh, Gimlin oh, Patterson yeah, the third one. He's working on a third book. Is that right? Yeah. Right. In the book, too, I love that picture of that hand in the trail cam. Mm-hmm. These people out in Arkansas, if I'm not mistaken, had a 300-acre plot, he said. Nobody came out there. It's just them, 300 acres. And they started hearing the Bigfoot scene, and they put up trail cams right on the porch, and they got photos of something. Yep. There's a picture of some top of a head. It's that crazy. Head. Eh, 
him and that hand. I mean, you look at that. Okay, maybe you think it's computer generated or something. I guess I can't prove that's not what's going on. But really, it looks like our kind of a gorilla human mixed <laughs> something. Yeah, that, that, that hand one is a great piece. Incredible. You know, everyone who says there's no pictures, there's no evidence. There's pictures and there's evidence. Okay. Yeah. By the way, this movie that I saw last year, A Flash of Beauty, Bigfoot Reveal, is an excellent Bigfoot movie. I think it's really good. I'll check that uh, one out. That's a great documentary. It's the newest one, and that has a lot of good footage, as far as I'm concerned. Some really good photos in there and footage that I never saw before I looked at that. And what I really liked about it at the end, Gary, this totally fits our conversation. It's a whole other element to this. Just consider this. Their psychiatrist, psychologist interviewed at the end say, not only do people have PTSD from their cryptid encounters, they don't remember them. Your brain erases it. It's too weird. You, you don't have the mental, you know, you don't have the ability to have an experience like that. Your brain doesn't want to have an experience like that. You don't want to see something that's 12 foot high that looks sort of primate-like and also human-like and you don't know what it is and your brain just does a delete reboot. And you end up with missing time. Which makes sense, too, because just like sleep, you know, it's like we, we disregard our dreams as, you know, imaginary. So the brain automatically disregards eight hours of my experience every morning when I wake up. There you go. It's gone. There you go. That's a, I never thought about that. It's a very good analogy. Yeah, it just, you remember it the moment you wake up, but if you don't recall it pretty quickly, it fades. So it's deleting that, saying you don't need to know that. And it's doing the same thing with cryptid encounters. Hmm. I've met people who've had these missing time encounters out in the woods. I kind of wonder what happened to them. They wonder what happened to them. It just doesn't, they're just missing time, you know? Hmm. They're back in the parking lot. I wrote about one woman in, in Dark Matter Monsters, Lauren. She said she was hiking with a friend in Estes Park. In Rocky Mountain National Park, all of a sudden, 20 minutes into the trail, all of a sudden they're back on the in the parking lot. It's dark. A couple hours have gone by, and they don't know what happened. And what is that? Two people. You know, it's happened around, I know people happen around Sasquatch encounters. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they see the Sasquatch, they're about to take a picture, all of a sudden, time goes by, they're back in their vehicle, they don't. Is the brain deleting it? I don't know. Maybe the creatures are, I don't know. I, I, it's either all of the above, but it's an interesting area. Well, certainly so that's possible. another aspect of what we were talking about. What was that? It's certainly possible we can forget eight hours a day of our lives. Yeah, it's, it's certainly possible. And it goes back to the very thing we were beginning, talking about right at the beginning of the show here. It's not just society's unwillingness to talk about this professionally. It's our own brain's wanting desire for consistency. Mm -hmm. It's sort of that consistency bias that it is deleting experiences that it doesn't want you to remember too that are just too strange. I think that's another possibility we have to consider that you're you have mental defense mechanisms that are you won't even remember what you saw, right? For better or worse, and uh. You, that's another aspect of this mystery. Hmm. We could be having experiences. Many of us could be having these, and we're not remembering it. When the, when the cryptids are probably laughing to themselves, if if they knew, if they, they're probably doing this on purpose, and we're they're right out there on the street, and we're just forgetting, and they're going like they're right there, and we're just like, oh. 
Those humans, there to go, forgetting. <laughs> It'd be kind of a funny cartoon, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but again, you talk to people who have these missing time experiences. I mean, I'm not saying that's all what it is. There can be different structures of space-time that we encounter. Permittivity, you would know about that as someone who worked with electrical constants in space mm -hmm. that can change. And that could cause space-time shifts and things and, and forgetfulness and, and all of this. It's very complex stuff. But again, I think if we talk about it, we'll learn. You know, here's what this all comes down to since you asked me about an hour ago. Why does it matter? I think we should know who we are. I think we have the right to know who we are. We live these lives and we should have a sense of who we are and what's going on to the best of our capacity. And I don't think we'll know until we engage in these topics a little more. That's a good reason. That and your other reason too, you know, peace. Sure. Peace would be nice yeah. too. I think uh, that would be... Uh, it kind of would go would... hand in hand, I think. I think the more we know about ourselves, the more likely we are to live peacefully. Right. That would be the hope anyway. I think that's a, it's a, it's a good idea. So before we wrap it up, I want to thank you for coming on. It was a great interview. And where's yeah, the best place for uh, my listeners to find you and find your books? Uh, you can always get my books on Amazon. Uh, Opening Minds, Dark Matter Monsters, even Black Swan Ghosts, which is about these UFO witnesses I've come across, like that woman whose dad flew wreckage to, to write Pat. But you can go to my blog, New Crystal Mind. NewCrystalMind.com, and I have a link, and you can get signed copies of these books directly from me. Awesome. I'll put links to all that in the notes of this episode so my listeners can find you. Yes. All right. Well, thanks for being on. And I have a YouTube channel, of course, and Twitter, so you can interact with me that way, too. Awesome. I'll put links to those also. Thanks. Um, thanks for coming on. It was a great interview. Thanks a lot, Gary. We'll, we'll talk again soon, okay? All right. Have a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. Recording also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. If you loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.